Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Describing Roddy Collins as a former footballer and manager doesn't really cover it. Not when you're talking about one of the most colourful and controversial figures Irish soccer has ever produced. Through a career with as many crushing lows as triumphant highs, from broken legs and financial turmoil to title wins and media celebrity, he always came back fighting, dishing out that famous cabra wit in an impeccably tailored suit. Roddy, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to chat to you. Um, you have committed your incredible life story down to paper with uh, the help of Paul Howard in the wonderfully titled The Rod Father, so uh, evocative. Um, there's a passage, Roddy, in the book where you talk about um, you've just been appointed Bohemian's manager and uh, you describe the perception as, of yourself as Roddy Collins, the man with the bespoke suits and the swagger and the big statements. And that kind of sums up perception a lot of us would have uh, of you. Is, is that who you are and where, where does that person come from? Well, that wasn't my description, Tom. That was uh, Tony O'Connell yeah. who employed me. It must have been, of course it was. I, I loved fashion. I was always loud. Always like, you know, probably a bit of an extrovert look for attention as a kid. So where better to get that than an audience of thousands of people <laughs> in a football ground? And that's what it was for me. I was a great admirer of old Louis Copeland. When I used to go on the meets from school, I'd spend my time looking at his window of the old shop in Capel Street. And I always wished and wondered, could I ever afford a suit? Would I ever have someone going to measure me for a suit? So I must have been there from when I was a kid. So then when I got the job in Bowles, so where better would you have an audience to go out and drive everyone mad in chalk pinstripe suits, spats, you know, uh, carnations on your clothes. That was brilliant. I loved it. I loved the crowd. I loved the stick as well. I got, you know. Uh, tell us about uh, the Collins family house then, a 12 Animo Terrace. This is where, where it all comes from. We talked about the, the love of uh, attention uh, that, that you had. Nine packed into a two-bedroom house, but it, the picture you paint in the book is of a very close-knit, loving family. That permeates throughout your life. Oh, 100%. It? It, was a, it was, to us, it was a mansion. Why? Because it was just pure love. My father, my, we lived with my nanny, my nanny Collins. She was a great woman, strong, great principles, you know, really uh, just a beautiful lady. Now, my ma was given the keys of a house in Arbor Hill because my dad was a Guinness worker, but she didn't do it. She stuck with my nanny and loved her, like a mother to her, and she loved her homeliness. I remember my ma always saying the first time she went to visit 12 Animal Terrace with my dad, she went and could smell the home cooking. Mm. You know, the, the fire was blazing. I mean, Nanny was a great woman. There was Mick, my eldest brother. He was the star of the show, I always say that. He was a brilliant, powerful looking fella. Um, great entertainer, could sing, could tell jokes, could do anything. No interest in sport. 
you know, even though he could play football and he could box, he just no interest. So that was there. Then I came, then it was Stephen, then it was Colette, Audrey and Pascal, and then one brother in between me and Mick. And uh, sadly, we lost him after a few days, but we never forgot him. So it was a house full of, because it was my nanny's house, all the Collins men came every Sunday morning. So they'd arrive, uh, my uncle John and my uncle Terry, who was my dad's best pal, Terry, he was a boxer as well. They'd come in to see their mother. And the atmosphere on a Sunday was brilliant. We were, their other two brothers was James and Dixie. One was in Birmingham, one was in Glasgow. They would come in the summer and they'd have the holidays in the house. So you can imagine, Tommy, we'd nine in the house. And my memories were the happiness before they go out, my ma getting dolled up and me dad in these beautiful Italian suits. And I'd be looking at them going out up the road, down the passage, up the road to Hannes County, I'd walk up. And to me, they were, they were a powerful-looking couple. I say the best-looking couple in Cabra. Hmm. I've had a few complaints. Got a few complaints on that one. But to me, to me, they were, you know. And it was a love, it was a great home, you know. The other thing you mentioned about, uh, as well as love of attention when you can get it with that many people around, is a problem with authority figures, which rears its head in school and would frequently in life to come with football chairman and other, other figures down the road in your life flare up. Was that something that you always had? Well, obviously. I don't remember it. Right, walking out of school at four. Right, my mad does. She had nightmares for years. But I do remember trying to figure out why you had to put your hand up to ask somebody could you use the toilet. Like, I, I've no problem with authority. Obviously, otherwise I'd be sitting in Mount Joy now, right? But I didn't believe in people with their own ideas of authority that used it for their own ego and their own power. And I've seen that through life and I've seen it up till yesterday. And that's the way life is and I'll never accept it. Mm. Never. I, you know, rules are rules, you have to abide by rules. But people creating or bending rules to suit their ego, that's not for me. Yeah. And I questioned everything. The picture you paint of Cabra then uh, growing up is, it's a great capsule of, of time um, in terms of, of what Dublin was like uh, back then. But, it, you know, there's there's a sense of adventure and lots of things going on. There's also, um, you know, a, bit, a sense of violence in the air. The things were sorted out with their with their fists. Um, and you describe yourself as a, a bowsy uh, at the time, a bit of a bowsy in your teenage years. What does that yeah. mean? And what were you like? Well, a bowsy was a word my dad would say, oh, he's a bowsy. So that was the worst person you could be in the planet. So to to me, in my father, in my father's eyes, if he'd have found out what I was up to, I would have been the worst person to my father. So I can't be said but Bowsy. And I was look, come here, you're on the streets of Cabaret, dreaming of Crumlin. We were all packed with kids. There was madness, there was football, there was cowboys and Indians, there was all sorts of games. But there was always in every walk of life a cohort of, you know, people that thought they could do better in life. Uh, you know, very quickly. Right. Without having to go to school and without having to listen to uh, authority. And I knew a few of them that were a lot older than me. And I looked at, I looked up to them actually. They had um, gold watches and shiny coats and shiny shoes. And, mm. You know? And then look, you got older. You realised then that the ones that you looked up to were gone. And where were they gone? They were in prison. Mm. So you didn't see them for 12 months, two years. And then you realised, yeah, me dad's right. There's, there's a better future down the road. And, you know, than, so, than yeah, that. it was a small, a small... Um, lesson learned. Lesson learned, yeah. yeah. Um, football grabs you in a big way. 
and that'll take us into the, the, the meat of the story. But you're a boxing house. Your dad is an absolute boxing enthusiast and it's, it permeates through, obviously, with, with Steve's success later in life uh, and your own interest in the sport. But what is it about football that, that sort of grabs you in this great romantic way from, from such a young age? George Best. Like, football was football, but he was something different. He was like something from a different planet. And I remember looking at him and thinking, he's brilliant. And my father agreed, even though my father was a boxing man. And then years later, we all boxed, you know. That was it with the gym on the back of the house. And that was our thing, was boxing. But I always liked football, played on the street morning and night. And then when I got older, <clears throat> I realised boxing wasn't for me. Even though I continued till I was about 17, 16, 17, I took up football. Really took a shine to it. St. George best with the four coats and the E-type jags. And I remember them pouring the champagne out, all the glasses. And they're telling it, ah, oh, Jesus, that's for me. Mm. Not a dingy old boxing club, <laughs> damp and wet and cold and going home with blood got, up your nose and a sour face. <laughs> like, I was good at the boxing. Yeah. Till they start trying to hit me back. I thought this is a great sport. And I'm jabbing them and yeah. that's they're hitting me and going, oh, that's not part of the script, you know. But that was it. So no, I took a, the, the, the glamour, the attention. It was more attention on football. You know, with a group of lads and that was just for me. So obviously that was my road. I remember Brendan McCarthy. I was in Arbor Hill Boxing Club. I was at the fight for the youth heavyweight title and got beaten. And I remember telling Brendan I'm getting a trailer full of And he said to me, well, what do you love the most? I said, football. Well, go, he said, because you have to love boxing more to achieve anything. And that was it, you know. And anyway, I went over. And who was there on the George Best? Well, I knew that before I went. And I could not believe this. This was like... Um, the best thing that ever happened to me in my life, even if it only lasted one day, hmm. just to meet this man who I idolised. And uh, I did. And he was a lovely, lovely fella. He treated you well? He treated me well. I mean, I was a nobody, obviously. But I remember me and Paddy McCarthy, who came with me, sitting down the change room, and he sat between the two of us, and he put his arm around Paddy, because Paddy was a bit homesick. And he was talking to him, telling about how he felt as a kid and all that. He didn't have to do that. And I remember being picked on the five-side team, with George Best, and they all called him Bestie. Mm. And I was calling him Bestie. Yeah. And every time I got the ball, she wanted to pass the Georgie, you know. And then to me, I got the ball, I go, Bestie, Bestie, Bestie. Oh, man. It was unbelievable. It was like a dream. And even when I sit down now, I think, did that really happen to me? And it did. It was brilliant. And he was a lovely man. Yeah, trials at Fulham, Arsenal, and Wolves, you weren't picked up. Yeah. Uh, was that crushing for you? Was that disappointing for you? And how do you reflect on it now? Oh, well, do you know what's the most disappointing for me, Tom, was? You go over from Ireland and someone asks you to come, pay for everything, bring you over, and then they don't even talk to you. And you're thinking, like, what's this all about? Like, I thought, in my innocence, first flight ever in my life, I was arriving over there and there's going to be a superstar when I arrived. So you're just thrown into a little corner and you're left with a lot of other kids on trial. I was a physical kid, and if I whacked somebody in train, I'd apologise. You know what I mean? If I gave a ball away, I'd apologise. I spent my whole time, particularly at Arsenal, because it was such a high standard, apologised because I was probably doing that much wrong. Yeah. So Arsenal didn't work for me. It didn't work at all. And uh, John Devine done his utmost, and Frank Stavon was very kind to me. John Devine was brilliant. He was getting into the team or thereabouts, and he done everything in his power to help me, to, to encourage me and be friendly with me. And But look, it just, I wanted to go home. Let's talk about the other great love in your life then that, that comes through in the book very strongly all the way through. Um, and that's Caroline. And you meet her very young at this stage as well. Tell us about that experience because it's very vividly remembered. 
I was walking up Henry Street, and I'll never forget it. And I turned onto O'Connell Street, and the number 10 bus stop was there outside Funland. Funland, sorry. It was an amusement arcade. And I seen this girl standing there. All I seen was the side of her. And she had a school uniform, and she had one stocking up, one stocking up. I don't know why I remember that, because obviously <laughs> I must have looked. And I never seen her again after that, but I, had a, I never stopped thinking about her. And I probably, about eight, ten months later, when I turned 16, I remember seeing her again. And she'd grown from a schoolgirl into a woman in a beautiful outfit, walking down Prussia Street. And I was, never forget it, I was on a break from my pub job. It was a Stevens' day. And I was cycling up on my, my little chopper bike. And uh, I remember she walked and went, oh, Jesus, she's gorgeous. And then a couple of months later, a chap who drank in the pub, you know, he played for the team, said he was leaving his girl home one night and she had a pal. And I had no girlfriend. And he said, would you like to leave her home? And they're standing at the top pub in Stony Batter when he turned the corner with his, his own girl and this girl. And here was a Caroline. Oh, Jesus, I thought, <laughs> this is unreal. <laughs> she was gorgeous. And I went, oh, God. And I thought to myself, well, I hope the one that he's with is not Caroline. <laughs> And it wasn't. His girl was marrying. And I went, I'm leaving the home. And that was it. Yeah. I left the home for six weeks in a row. I was afraid to ask her out. In case she'd say no, right? And I remember on the sixth week, it was Valentine's weekend. And I was prepared all week. Here I was, what they say. Uh, I think you're a great girl. We have great conversations. Blah, blah. I didn't know what to say because it, it wasn't me. Anyway, I just said to her, come here, I think you're great. Uh, would you go out on a date with me? And she said, yeah. I said, give us a kiss, we live on She says, no, I don't know you well enough. <laughs> you know, throughout the story and all the trials and tribulations, she's there, she's a rock. Um, is, that, is it a yin and yang thing? Does Caroline kind of balance you out a bit? Oh, Tommy. Tony O'Connell, Torlock O'Connell, the people that really know me, Caroline's family, my own family. How did that woman put up with you? Yeah. Uh, Caroline's a steady Eddie, right? She's strong as a bull mentally and physically, uh, takes no prisoners and sorted me out many, many times. And I needed it. Because when you meet someone or see someone at 15, start going out at 16 and go through the life, the most imperfect life that I've gone through and still have the same love, affection and devotion from a human being who I, in return, give back, it's, it's, it's just it's a, a, a lucky break. I got a lucky yeah. break and I know that. She's the best. So bouncing back from that first experience in England means life with Caroline. Also means uh, being an apprentice plasterer, a trade that would stand to you uh, well throughout the years, through all the ups and downs. Football then with Bohemians. So you jo join Bowes and, and you get to play UEFA Cup game uh, in Lisbon against Sporting where you play a stormer and it feels like things are going back on track, but then you break your leg. Yeah, it was like I come back uh, from England I was 18, 19, I actually turned 19. I was well into a relationship with Karen. We were going to be together forever. That was done and dusted. So I didn't have to worry about her going out on a Saturday night. So I was happy in my skin, happy in, in my apprenticeship as a plaster. And I was happy playing my football. And I signed for balls. And I'll never forget it. The game wasn't two minutes on. And a ball broke. And I went flying in. The next thing I heard, it was like, it was like, 
I could hear the branch of a tree snapping. Mm. Right? And I remember the other lad going that way and he was in agony. And I looked down and my knee was that way, facing the north, and my foot was facing Galway. My dad was on the line with Stephen. Michael Haney was on the line with Georgie Dillon, my two pals. And I remember Billy coming and throwing his coat over my leg. But when I went to the hospital, I was in traction for six weeks in the bed. It didn't work out. Then it didn't heal. Then I was in a cast for, I think, six months. Then we were going to break it and put a plate in. Then oh, it was a disaster. So it took me about, I think I'd done my first jog in the Phoenix Park after about 18 months. I'll never forget it. And it was probably one of the happiest nights of my life. Carla going down with me and she was timing me jogging. Mm. Probably took me an hour to get around the polo grounds, but it was the happiest thing I ever done. To get back in your feet. To get back, yeah. Um, you do get back and you get back playing, but you're hit with another blow, um, another really, really huge personal blow not long after that when you lose your father, Roddy. Um, he was only 49 and you were with him shortly before you, you, you lost him. And how did that affect you, do you think, um, looking back on it now? Uh, right. Well, personally, it was devastation. Take your time. Football-wise, it was like, I had no interest. Mm. I had no interest. I, I just, I had no interest. I gave it up. I gave it up. And, uh, just. Have, have you thought more about him uh, going through writing the book as it sort of uh, put into context the, the role he had? Well, do you know what, Tom? I think about him all the time. He was my idol. I wanted to achieve for him as well as everyone else. And uh, that happened. So I went a little bit off, off the radar. I stopped. No interest. Carla was pregnant, right? Yeah. So that, thank God, got me back on track. I had to start getting my head together for that one. I remember the day before my dad died, we played in our uh, Mel's Park. And I remember after, so my dad knew nothing about football, but I remember after every game, I'd come and sit in the end of his bed. He'd wait up for me, and I'd come in and I'd go, right, Dan, he go, blah, blah, blah. I remember coming in and he goes, they're brutal. <laughs> you have to get out of there, you know? And he was right. You know, it wasn't where I expected I should have been and mm. wanted to be. Like, Bowes was a big club. Anyway, so then what happened with Dad the next day? That, that was devastating. So I didn't care about nothing in life. Nothing. Only Caroline. And then realising we I was going to be a father very, very soon. I went back to Dave, who was a lovely man, and I remember sitting with him in his travel agency over on Balls Bridge, and I begged him to, to cancel my registration, and he did. You understood, I was distraught. You know, and I went back to Billy, and Billy took me back more and I was simply yeah. an actual, you know. So I felt something was getting back on track in my life. I was back with people like Terry Everson, who I looked up to, you know, and I was back with people around the club like Austin Brady. That made me feel good. And then I started to go on my life the best I could. Then Caroline's father dropped dead, sitting on the edge of his chair. He was getting ready for a, for a wedding. Carla's sister Sandra was getting married and Sandra was at the show in a Dara wedding dress. So I sat down and Billy just went, looked around and went, that was it. Pulled them out the floor, we did what we were doing. And Billy was gone. So 
Then there was a wedding the weekend. It was a double wedding with Alan and Sandra and, and, and Alan's sister, Angela. So they had to go ahead, right? And then four weeks later, Caroline gives birth. And I said to her in the book, it was like a scene out of Snapper because of all the, the sadness. Suddenly we do this little baby girl and they were all running in with balloons and it was unbelievable. And then, you know, we just, when you think back, we don't know how, like in your lifetime, you march on. But when mm. you actually put that down, that was a little block of pure grief. And then Sinead came out of it. And she's been brilliant. Yeah. She was, she was brilliant, you know. Because at that time, I think Turtle O'Connor really comes into your oh, life. And time. you described, like, so he's obviously a legend from his time at Bowes. Yeah. Great uh, Irish striker. And then managing Athlone to great success, winning, winning the league title. Would you say he was almost like a father figure to you at a time when, when you really needed it? Well, I, I have to be careful on this one, Tom, because I had a lot of father figures in my family. Mm. My uncle John, he, I went to live with my uncle John for a while. Dixie came over. My uncle Terry was my best pal, always with Terry. But um, in, in the, the, see, I was in, immersed in football at that stage, right? And I just said, right, I'm going to make it. I don't care. And in spite of everything, I'm going to make me dad proud. And I met Torlock in a coffee shop in Fisbury, and I was like that. Yeah. Right? I had played for nothing. I'd have given him £20 a week to let me play. I'd to win the league at long. So Torlock sat down, I sat down, and I was so nervous. So I remember Torlock signing me, giving me £20 a week and 150 signing down fee. And he, he looked at me and he said to me, if you can't do what Tony Cascarino can do, I'll eat my hat. And that was the, how can I say, that was the most positive, most motivational thing that's ever been said to me since I was going to England and everyone was talking about me. And I thought, I'll die for this he man. He believes in me. And I'll die for him. Mm. He did believe me right up until I was 37. Yeah. And then he helped me outside of football. Yeah. And Tony O'Connell. Yeah. Tony was a mentor to me. He put me in the boss job. Tony was, the, Tony was and still is the wisest human being that I've ever engaged with in my life. So you, you get back on track playing and, and it goes well and then you get, you get the want to go and try England again. Yeah. And you give it a real good go. And it, well, you have to change your birth cert first. Is, is, that, is that right? I did. Yeah. No, <laughs> How easy was that? Simple. Yeah. Simple, yeah. I had an uncle, Liam, Liam Fields, bit of a rogue. Could, uh, could could get you a bird set. So I went down to Liam in the Blue Line in Parnell Street and Liam got me a lovely bird set, knocked three years off. <laughs> and uh, I sent I, I sent letters to all the lower league clubs in England. Conference and league three and four was back then, right? And I got one reply from Mansfield. I, I, I remember going to Cairns' pawn shop in North Queen Street and pawning a ring of me father's and a gold chain to get me flight money over. Yeah. And I went on trial. And the last day, Ian Graves caught me to the job, said, Rod, all right, but not for what we want at the moment, and not because we're going to have to pay money. And I said, well, OK. And I sort of felt, well, look, I tried my best. And I don't know if it was relief or acceptance, but the pressure was off me. And he said to me, we have a game. We played Chesterfield in a, in, a, in a trial game for someone else. Will you play? Yeah, I played before I go back and I scored five. It's unbelievable. I was in the car before I knew it. Straight in the car with Greavesy, the manager, back to field mill. Was that the big, 
you know, the, the the big sense that this was this was now this was when it had to happen and when when it didn't work out and you went home, was that a big disappointment? Well, well, first of all, Tom, I was twenty five. Yeah, I knew that. Nobody else knew that. I got through the the, the summer, and I trained real hard. And I was going back, and Carla was following me on. She packed up her job, done everything. House was up for sale. Carlin was following me on, and next of all, my first pre-season game, played Leamington Spa. We were going to the chairman's house for a bonding session, and I remember jumping the head of ball, coming down and busting my ankle. And I went, oh, Jesus, no. And I remember, I remember Caroline in the bed shaking, and she was crying her eyes out. And I went, oh, Jesus. I was to tell her about my ankle, but she didn't know about injuries. And I said, look, this will be a couple of weeks. I'll be back flying. This is going to be our year, Caroline. And I remember in the bed, I thought, this is, oh, Jesus, now. Reality kicked in. Karen's had to give up her whole life. Mm. Her friends, her job, which she loved her job. She was doing brilliant in that. The house, I had the man up who was injured. I eventually got back playing. Got in around the first team. Scored a goal in a defeat. At least I scored a goal. And I was back up and running. And I got whacked on the, not the, the, not the tib, as they call it, the big one. I got whacked on the fibula. And that snapped. So they sent me for a bone scan. And there it was. It was broken. Mm. That sort of um, bad luck and, uh, you know, issues uh, would, would continue with your time at Newport and then your brief spell at Cheltenham. And at the, at the end of it, um, you have this conversation with, with Carling and it's, it's, it's time to go home, time to pack up yeah. and go home, time to grow up is how you put it yeah. uh, in the book and you, and you go, go back to Ireland. Is that how it felt there? It was like, right, I've had a go at the dream and yeah, yeah, well, I, I never really gave up, Tom. Yeah. I never really gave up. I still believed, you know, I could do it. So your uh, times at, at Rovers, Dundalk and Sligo then, but I want to talk to you about your time in Northern Ireland then, yeah. because it's interesting that you have, I think it's three years at Crusaders, yeah. and Crusaders are in, obviously, a quite loyalist part very. Of, of Belfast. You're yeah. a, a Catholic from the South and an Catholic opinionated... Catholic from Cabra, a very Republican from, area. Yeah. Um, but you just describe it as the best time of your career and, and, and wonder why that suited you. Why did you enjoy, enjoy it? Did you enjoy the edginess of that, that mix? Not really. No, it was nothing to do with that. That never came into it. It started going up, Tom, it was. I tell you probably when I think about it now that I've, I've wrote it down, the pressure was off wanting to be the best I could be. I couldn't be the best League of Ireland player. I couldn't get player in the League of Ireland where I wanted all my peers to, to respect me. I couldn't get that. That was over. So I got to play football for enjoyment which when I think now was probably the biggest regret I ever had. I should have always done it. Yeah. Put myself under too much pressure. Anyway, I ended up signing for Cruz. I walked up. I wasn't impressed with the whole setup. I remember going down with Tony O'Connell, who I knew were only met for the first time, really. I remember arriving at CV and I remember looking at all the murals. I remember getting stopped at checkpoints. I remember, you know, it was the height of the troubles. And I remember thinking, eh, it's not bad, you know. It wasn't too hostile. I remember walking in and in any dressing room, even as a manager, as a player, you get a bit edgy going in. How are we going to be received? This big fella, honest to God, Tom, he was as big as the door and uh, tattoos everywhere, right? Big man, Kirk Hunter from the Shankle. The Shankle, right? I remember going in and he looked at me. He did his foot in a pot at the time on crutches. And he goes, what about you, big man? He says, you know, and I went, yeah, I'm all right. Get a wee cup of tea. And that instant, he was like a man I knew all my life, yeah. right? I knew then there was going to be no shenanigans as regards religion or politics. 
So Kirk got me a cup of tea. I went in. I watched the game. It was crap. The pitch was crap. The game was crap. But everything else was brilliant. I felt brilliant. And I remember Tony saying to me, what do you think? I said, Tony, I'll sign now. And I did. You played on a Saturday. You went up, had a crack with great lads in the car. Antonio O'Connell. You played a game in the home ground, back in the car. Carlin had waiting in the hole in the wall with all the other partners and wives. We'd all go in there. We'd all head off into town. Sure, it was heaven. Yeah. Why would you not be happy? <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, Roddy, I think we'll take a little sidestep from your own sporting career now and just talk a bit about your brother. Uh, and it's fair to say he was, uh, you know, a huge star at this time or building towards being a huge star at this time in, in, in your life on the road to becoming a world boxing champion, of course, involved in some of the some of the most famous kind of sporting occasions of the 1990s when you think of the Eubank fights and Mill Street and all that. What was, you're by his side the whole time, of course. You know, that's, yeah. you're, you're, everybody nearly knows you as much um, by his side, carrying the belts into the ring and all that. Yeah. What was that ride like? Did you feel like a protective older brother or were you just there? Was it just the, the glamour and the whirl of it all? I wasn't glamour at the start. <coughs> Pardon me. Stephen started boxing when he was eight. So, you know, we were at all his fights as a kid. I'm five years older than Stephen. So we've seen the progress. We've seen the rise. We didn't see the potential, mm. to be quite honest. But he had something. Stephen, Stephen said when he was a kid, I'm going to be the heavyweight champion of the world. He believed that. Mm. And if he had to be in another two or three inches, he would have been. But he was he was winning all the titles. Then he decided he wanted to go to America when my father was gone. He wanted to go to America and become pro. And he went off with the Irish national team and never came home. And my sister Audrey rang me one day. Stephen was out to win the USBA title. And she said... She felt, pardon me, really sorry for him that uh, he got dropped in the 11th round with a body shot. And when he get dropped, Tom, with a body shot, you can't even breathe. It's like, mm. but your faculties are about you. And he was going around his hands and knees in the ring. And she said her perception of it was she was looking out and he was looking for someone and there was no one there he knew. And that broke me heart. I went, oh, Jesus Christ. So I was thinking to me, die. And I was just, that's never going to happen again. No matter what we have to do, Someone's always going to be there. But I went over. My first time to see Stephen as a pro was defending his USBA title. Mm. I could not believe that was the kid that slept in bed beside yeah. me. It was unreal. How he boxed, how he could box, how he could move, his hand speed, stuff that I never perceived he had. And I was so proud of him. It was unbelievable. 
And you were Brilliant. there at every step of the way with all those big oh, fights. What's yeah. like, you know, looking back on it now, the glamour of it, uh, of, of that stage of it when he was a world world champion, it must be, must be incredible memory. Uh, Tom, we went, well, look, the glamour came after the Eubank fight. Well, that night was like surreal. I remember getting there the last minute, helicopters dropping in at the back of the, the arena, getting in, getting into the dressing room. Stevens walk into the ring. Atmosphere was unbelievable. It was, I've never experienced anything like it. And they were all their own people. I remember Stephen going in with the hood up, the earplugs, and the whole lot. But I remember Stephen's unbelievable belief I'm going to be the new champ. He kept saying in the dressing room, new champ, new champ, new champ. And that night, I, oh, Tommy, I swear to God. My stomach was in bits. I prayed to me that every punch that was thrown. I only seen Stephen getting hit. Mm. Right? Because that's all I was worried about. But then I seen him growing into it. Then I seen the crowd. Then I seen Eubank not having it too much. Yeah. Then I seen Stephen hitting the floor and winked over at the corner. He hit Stephen with his best shot and he wasn't finishing him off. He hadn't got the stamina that Stephen had. And the rest was history. The rest was history, yeah. Oh, my God, Tommy. What a fighter he was. Yeah. And what a fighter you were in your managerial career, because we, we have to get into that. We yeah. stick a skip forward, uh, Roddy. Um, tell me about managing Bowes. You, you mentioned there that you got your grounding at Bangor, uh, brief spell there. You get into Bowes. We talked at the top of, uh, of this interview about donning the suit and being the persona and being the gaffer. And on one side, hugely successful, still one of the great times in, in Bohemian's recent history. On the other side, you are at absolute war with the people behind the scenes there in the yeah. board. Tell us your recollection of that time. Well, my recollection was I packed in football. I was manager of Bangor and they sacked me. Nothing to do with, with results or anything like that. They sacked me and I gave it up. I was fed up, you know, and I was contracting. I was employing a lot of people. I was making loads of money and I had no interest. And I never even went to a game. I was with Steve and then enjoying that. And I got a phone call one Monday night, it was Torlock. And he said, Rod, would you come down to Bowes? Would you like to get involved in Bowes? We're building a new stand. I know you're building a company, a plaster company. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd make a half million out of that <laughs> all day long, you yeah. know. And uh, so anyway, their manager had walked out and he asked me to come down. So I met Torlock the next day in uh, Switzers, Brown Thomas as it is now. And he said, yeah, we need someone to manage the club. He said, but Torlock said, I'm going to do it. I want you beside me for a while, then you can move in. I thought, Jesus, is this real? Couldn't believe it. So he didn't have to ask me twice, never. Once football was involved. So I said, yeah, I'm there. So the first training session, I remember turning up and they were sneering at me. So anyway, I knew I'd a battle. But I knew football. I'd been relegated with uh, Drada and uh, I'd won leagues with Dundalk. So I knew the bottom and I knew the top end. And then I realised that the club was being run by certain players who were well in with the committee who had no ambition. The committee had no ambition. Their ambition was stay in the league, get a cup run, break even, no financial problems. But that wasn't the balls I supported. So I decided, right, there's only one way to do this and that's to get rid of most of them. So I pulled a meeting one Sunday morning and I sat everyone down. No one gets stripped. And I went through every single player at that meeting and I told them why they would keep us up and why they wouldn't. And the ones that weren't were told they were finished, you'll get paid. you get your wage sent out to find another club, but don't report back anymore. I rang Tony 
How are you, Tony? How are you, son? Yeah, I just can't be son. I said, Tony, just to let you know before you're here, I have to commit you to someone else. I've let six players go to finish with the club. And the phone went quiet. And he went, are you f f serious? I said, Tony, I said, look, I've experienced relegation as a player, right? And I'm telling you now, if we don't go that road, they'll go down. If you want to let me go now, I, I've no problem. Either let me, let me go or back me. And he, he just said, I'll back you. So I got Kevin Hunt in and Dean Martin. They played in Cork and we got a result. I think we drew. And that was their first point to drop at home. Then we went on a, a good little run. And then the atmosphere around the place, mm. the authority was there. They knew he takes no messing. I was installed into a club of committee men who'd no faith in me, by the main benefactor who they couldn't do without. So they had a conundrum. They had a tiger by the tail ton, mm. right? Who didn't want to just avoid relegation and get a little cup run, maybe a European spot, who wanted to stand by his word and win the league. And if you want to win a league, you need all the tools to do it. And if you need all the tools, you need people backing you. And if they don't back you, you're going to have conflict. And my time there was a running battle of pure conflict with the majority of the people on the board. But you delivered success. You had the great European nights against Aberdeen and, and Kaiserslautern. You win the double. You win the double and you say into a TV camera, this club is run by Stone Age people. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that was you, it. And you were, well, you were done then. Where did you done. know you were done? Well, I was done, Tom. But you see, I'd like to clear this up now because you don't get the opportunity, even in the book. You see, people talk about managerial careers. I took over Banger as a player manager, right? Got them into the top... Uh, six, where, eight to where they needed to be, mm. won a little cup and ended up top scorer for the team. That was my first job. The next job was Bohemians in a relegation dogfight as a novice in the league. Got them out of relegation, all by the skin of their teeth, right? The following season, we competed for the league. We were never going to win it, but we were competitive. Got to a cup final, right? So that's another successful season. And then the next year, the double... Two away wins in Europe, right? So in the first four years of my managerial career, if you put them together, we achieved more, Tom, than most managers would achieve in 20 years. Mm. So I was on the road. People say, ah, I believe, believe that. I was going on the road, Tom. I got sacked. I did say, it was run by Stone Age men, 100%. Because I have it, the battles to prove it. Like, if I walked into another club tomorrow... That were me, me, you know, happy with mediocrity. I'd be in battles. People yeah. don't like change, Tommy. They just don't like change, you know. So Bohemian's loss was was Carlisle's gain. This is your uproot again. Head over to England. People would know this time from the Rod Squad. Yeah. The documentary that's made. Well, Tom, it was an opportunity to go into the big league, right? Where football's an industry, mm. where you didn't have the battles to get extra balls and stuff like that. So I went from being successful at balls to a club that was in administration who teetered on the, the point of relegation every year. We know the, the Jimmy Glass story mm. a year or two beforehand. And I went in there and I'm thinking, well, I've, I know relegation. I've done it twice. Bowers and Banger. I do that one in my sleep, right? I went in there with the most colourful man in football, Michael Knighton, mm. who was brilliant company, mad as a brush in football terms, but very intell intellectual, intelligent man who was burnt in the club. Anyway, I went in, my confidence was through the roof, Tom, because I believed that the what I'd done at Bowser, I could do anything and still do. So I got stuck into it. 
Um, we got the, the season. We got through the season. And we've, I introduced John Courtney. Right? He asked me, I met him at a pub in Castlenock where he drank. And he said to me, I'll buy that club. So I showed up and meet with him and Michael Knight in Leeds Bradford Airport. And they had a meeting. And I said to Michael Knight, and I said, Michael, don't take the Maggie. Because if you do, I was riding with the supporters. Now, they loved me at this stage. Mm. And I said, if you do, I'm off. And anyway, there was a, a deal going on and on and on and on. So I, they were safe on Good Friday. We beat Halifax 1-0. Richie Ford scored. And they were guaranteed league football. So I knew I was bulletproof. And I went at it. I got sacked. And then eventually John Courtney bought the club. I went back. Then I got a call from um, Carmen Cardigan from Loose Horse Production and Satanta. And they asked, could I do a, a documentary? So I didn't think, you know, yeah, what do you want to do? Come in, yeah, should we have a bit of crack with that, you know? Didn't affect the, the, the performance of the team. They wouldn't even know I was in the dressing room. And then we got through the season. I changed attitude, changed tack, got different few players in, troublesome season. Got to the final of the LDV, cost us points along the way, I believe. Still believe Cups can cost you points when you're in relegation. And got to the LDV final and, yeah, got our relegation against Shrewsbury, penultimate game of the season. Everything was grand. Went on my summer holiday. After the game, I noticed the coolness. We played two games out, it was almost Boston away. I noticed I couldn't track down the chairman. He turned off my phone, turned off his phone, no contact. And I remember getting called to it. I remember going home and Sinead was at the change in her studies from Newt to Newcastle University. And she was in the last year of her science biology degree. And we were a family again. I remember saying to Sinead, Sinead, she wanted a car for a ma. Will you drop me at the training? And I went in and all the big hitters' cars were there. And you were gone. And it was gone. After a, a really difficult spell, you have times uh, in, in the League of Ireland which are good and times which are mixed, uh, and you're in Malta as well. But I, I want to just uh, get you to talk about bouncing back from that dark time after Carlisle and after you come back to Ireland. And you were in a really dark place. And how did you get out of that and get back into work and get to where you are today? Well, the dark, the dark place was very dark, really dark. And going back to the day of being a Bowsy as a young kid, I was back in that mindset. But it wasn't to progress financially. It was to even a score. And it was it was horrible. But I didn't notice it. I was engrossed in getting revenge for people destroying me, putting out Chinese whispers, you know. If there was a vendetta against Ah, there was you. a vendetta. Everyone knew that. Sure, everyone knew that. Everybody knew it, Tom. So I went to Jim Fitzpatrick to talk to him because I could talk to him in life terms, not football. Jim was a very kind, very, very quiet man. And he had a great friend called Lawrence Kettle. He was a Capuchin monk out in South Korea. He set up a meeting with me and Lawrence. So I spoke to Lawrence. He gave me advice. He helped me. And I went away, but it didn't work. It didn't work. I was still planning. I was planning a revenge mission. Right, That would have probably put me in prison, maybe. Ruined everything. But that's, the, that's, the, that's really? where I was. You were, you were, ah, I was. Yeah. Tommy, Tommy... I was, was in John Courtney in particular, or just yes. several? Yes, because he was the main instigator of what was happening, along with Delaney. He's no longer with us, of course. So. Yeah, well, that's fine. I wish yeah. he was here, because mm. I said it to him, and I said it to everyone else. He ducked away at me the rest of his life. And the other fella, he's me, Delaney, he ducked down on my house pub one night. They ran. 
So I met, I met the, uh, Lawrence and I sat down. I didn't walk for six months. They gave me rosary beers and I'm going, yeah, leave me alone with the rosary beers. But after about six months, he came back and he requested to meet me again. I did. And then I sat with him. And it was like a conversation we're having now. And he said to me, would you like to, do you ever have confession? I said, stop, will you? You don't want to hear my life. Mm-hmm. Anyway, he did in a conversation. And I was like, oh, Tom, it was like, it was like just someone just soaking everything out of your body, good, bad, and indifferent, and just leaving it there as an empty shell. And I was a shell. And he said to me, now you're, 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 all that anger is gone. I go, and it was. It was. He said to me, don't mind him. Don't mind them. Get out and be positive and get on the road again. But I was toxic in football because it wasn't the people that had me toxic. Mm. It was the authority. They were afraid to employ me because the people running the show. You know what I mean? So I opened the gym, you know? And, and you, you you opened a gym and you were training training boxers and... and training bare-knuckle fighters. That's yeah. what I was training, yeah. <laughs> Not boxers. Bare-knuckle fighters. Travelling men. That's what I was training. I wasn't qualified to tra- train a professional boxer, amateur boxer, but I was qualified to train bare-knuckle fighters. No problem. So I did. I what trained. did that do for you? Well, it, it engaged me in uh, having someone to look after again, having someone to motivate, having someone to respect like I did all the players that ever played for me, having fellas that respected me and my opinion and, and ability to help them. And it gave me a purpose in life, Tom, and it paid me because I was making nothing. Mm. I had five children going to college, not, not even working, right? And I had a mortgage and I had nothing. And people see the Louis Copeland suit and they think, oh, yeah, great. But that was, that was the suits I had. I hadn't got a penny, Tom. And I remember... I remember one time, I used to get a call, your mates and miles, right? Now, it was over the anger and the whole lot, but I still wasn't letting them win. I wasn't letting them win, right? I remember saying to Caroline one, one Monday, what have you got? She says, about 80 euros or pounds, whatever it was. And I said, right, come on, get dressed up quick. So I put my best suit on, Tom. Caroline put it, she said, goes, come on, down to miles. And I walked in and I said to Carl behind the counter, have you a bottle of my way in the fridge? I have, mm. right? I bought a bottle of my wife for 30 euros, right? And I said, can I sip that? Because we had nothing else. The other 50 was doing this for the rest of the week. And I sipped it and I agitated them. And I seen them agitated. And people in the pub were going, Collins is back, he's drinking champagne. <laughs> I had nothing. But I got back. I made money out of the gym. I worked hard, I went back class. And I, Tom, my father raised us to be a family man. Provide. That was it, Provide. And I done thermic at him. I, I done plastering. I trained bare-knuckle men. I done anything to put money in the account for uh, education, to put food on the table and to pay the bills. And that's what I done while I was waiting to get back on where I was brilliant that time and where I loved most, managing footballers. And, and you did do that. There's so much more um, that we haven't even touched on in the book, um, Roddy. It's an extraordinary story. And, you know, you mentioned about running wars with the FAI and John Delaney, that's all accounted for in there. And then bouncing back with success with getting Athlone and Monaghan pro- promoted in times in Malta, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And still up to today, um, the love is still there. The family is the rock, but the love of football is still there. And the, passion, there, the passion is clearly still there. Still there, Tom. I'm, I'm ready to go back to working in only a club in England in January. I never wanted to be out of the game as a manager, Tom because it's the only thing in my life that I've really achieved, mm. right? And why would I not be doing it? Have the energy, have more knowledge, 
Aye. And I have a CV, so why not? Where are you going? Well, Cheshire have asked me to become a director of an non-league club, but director's not for me. So there's another club that want me to go in and assist the managers in a little bit of trouble. I can't name it because the manager hasn't been told yet. They're in a relegation battle. And the chairman, who I know, asked me to come in January and sit in beside him and see how it goes. So that'll get me back on the, the merry-go-round. Carlo's looking forward to it. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. And as they say, it's never over till the fat lady sings, Tommy. <laughs> you have a great line in the book to, to round off. Uh, it's your friend, uh, Tony O'Connell, you've talked about uh, several occasions. Said have you, you've talked about regrets and decisions and mistakes and you know shooting yourself in the foot at times. Said if you could live your life over, you wouldn't make the same mistakes, but you'd make different ones. Is that how you, the audit of it all? That, well, that that's life, Tom. That is life. And that's life for you, for everybody, every person we meet. We all make mistakes. But owning the ones that you've made and coming to terms and living with them and owning up to them. So what more can you do? That's what I've done. Roddy, thanks for telling us your story. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.